Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. As you are aware, we are making it through the uh, doctrinal statement of the church. It has been commented by Stan up here that uh, working through the doctrinal statement is like walking through a minefield, um, only because it gives us an opportunity to talk about every branch of theology. And much of what we talk about is kind trying to keep us between the guardrails, if you will. If you believe that Jesus is only a good teacher, you've fallen off the side of the road this way. If you believe he was God but not human, you've fallen off the road on this side. So in one sense, we get to see all the minefield that we uh, have in theology. And nothing, nothing could illustrate that better than today's lesson. A hundred years ago, everything in this lesson would have just been considered common knowledge. We today are going to talk about man. I, just for fun, went through the one paragraph that we're going to deal with today, and I started marking up every current controversy that deals with today's lesson. And I stopped at 19 of them. Uh, We could have a long discussion, but we're going to try to make it through what is in the doctrinal statement itself. We believe that man was originally created in the image and after the likeness of God. Let's just stop right there. First off, first controversy. We believe that man... uh, What about women? Weren't they created too? You do know, right, that in the Old Testament, the word for man, Adam, is the name of the first man, Adam, but it is also the word used for the human race, for mankind. So the doctrinal statement is going to talk about mankind as all of us. Now, a lot of people don't like that, but oh well. We believe that man was originally created. Stop. We believe that we were created. This week, I was in a bookstore. I was thumbing through anthropology textbooks. There was one anthropology textbook. The title of it was Anthropology What does it mean to be human? And I will tell you, I did not read this entire anthropology textbook. I did thumb through it. I looked for certain topics in the index. But I can almost guarantee you that this anthropology textbook does not answer the question, what does it mean to be human? It just doesn't. Because we are not created in the image of God, we are in fact evolved creatures just like everything else. And the bulk of the anthropology textbook is to talk about the diversity of humanity. And you know what? Humans are very diverse. We have different cultures, we wear different clothes, we eat different food. You can't argue with that. But we are not 
created in the image of God. I mentioned at the very beginning of this series of lectures, uh, attending a um, conference in D.C. years, years ago when we lived in Virginia. And thumbing through the notes, I had a quote from R.C. Sproul who said, anthropology is the most important study that we're going to face because we don't know what it means to be human anymore. What does it mean that we are created in the image of God versus we are evolved creatures? I was having a book club one time and one of the members of the group had invited his cousin, who was an atheist ACLU attorney, uh, to the meeting. And we get into this discussion And he says, isn't it wonderful that the theory of evolution proves that everybody is created equal? And I go, no, it doesn't. And he and I argued this, and I actually, I I kid you not, he actually admitted I was right. And he came to the next meeting a month later. And you know what he said? Isn't it amazing that the theory of evolution shows that all people are equal? And I go, no, we did that last time. He goes, oh, you're right. But he was so convinced of it. Everything we talk about human rights is based on man being made in the image of God. Everybody else is just stealing it. If you believe evolution, what you believe are minor differences make all the difference in the world because that determines who survives and who doesn't. And guess what? We're all different. But you know what? We are all made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We as human beings are distinct from the rest of the created order, because we are made in the image of God. We have value, not because we're really smart, because some of us aren't. Not because we're good looking, because a lot of us aren't. We have value because we are made in the image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? I've got a list here, okay? But before we get to the list, we have to talk about the list. Um, You can read dozens of books about what it means to be made in the image of God. But what it boils down to, are you ready for this? We are made in the image, we are stamped with the image of God. We are like God. Later in the book of Genesis, it tells us that Adam is going to have a child in his image. I think that's Seth. In his image. What does it mean? Well, it means you look at Adam and you look at Seth and you kind of see Adam in Seth. I've never been very good at that game of, oh, this child looks just like his mother. I do know that if you get a baby picture of my oldest son and you get a baby picture of his oldest son, you would think they're the same person. 
He is made in the image of his Father. What does it mean that we are made in the image of God? We're going to talk about some very specific characteristics. But what it really means is they look at God and they see something in us and they look at us and they see something of God. They are as a family resemblance. Now, just to make sure we don't fall off the guardrail, this does not mean you are God. Okay? There is only one God, and you're not it. And he's not looking for a replacement. It means that you are stamped with his image. Do you remember the sermon a couple of weeks ago? They bring the coin. They, they, they ask Jesus, should we pay the tax to the Romans? And Jesus says, give me a coin. Whose image is on that coin? Well, Caesar's image. Well, give it to him. I don't care. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What are the things that are Caesar's? The things that are in his image. Render to God the things that are God. What thing is in God's image? You. That was a sermon two weeks ago. So, what does this mean? We are spiritual beings. God is spirit. We are body and spirit. We've said this a hundred times in this class. Sometimes we talk about ourselves being a body that happens to have a spirit. Probably the closer answer is we're a spirit that happens to have a body. So we are spiritual beings. We have personalities. We are persons. We desire relationships with other persons. Remember the verse we just read, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image. Relationships were built into the fabric of the universe because of the Trinitarian nature of God. And guess what? You were built for relationships. Even those, those of us who are introverts at heart, we want to have somebody to be an introvert with, Go figure. We have wills that can make choices. We are moral creatures. We're going to talk about that in just a moment because the second half, well, the bulk of this paragraph dealing with mankind talks about us rejecting the will of God and sinning and becoming fallen humanity. More on that in just a moment. We are creative. God made stuff, we make stuff. Now, God made stuff out of nothing, out of no stuff. We make stuff out of the stuff God has made. We bring order to it. Remember the passage. Go out there and tend the garden, have dominion. My opinion, this is my opinion. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, they would have had children, without pain, by the way. They would have had children, and those children would have children, and the Garden of Eden would have grown, and the Garden of Eden would have grown, and the Garden of Eden would have encompassed the entire earth. We are creative. We are made to do something. 
It is both a great dignity and a great responsibility to be made in the image of God. Now, I'm going to jump ahead for just a second, because we're going to talk about this in just a moment. One of the questions that we're going to ask is, well, we're fallen, sinful human creatures. Why do fallen, sinful human creatures do good things occasionally? Well, we do good things because we're made in the image of God. Even after we are fallen, we are still made in the image of God. Do you remember? Noah, boat, float around, get off the boat. God renews the covenant to Noah, says, I won't destroy the all of humanity again. And by the way, if anyone kills a human being, be it animal or person, their blood is to be shed also because man is made in the image of God. Now, we are well past the fall at this point. If God had wanted, he could have said, well, you used to be made in the image of God, then you messed it all up. But he didn't say that. Everyone on this planet is made in the image of God. Let's think about that for just one second. Think of the worst person you possibly know. And no, don't nudge them if they're sitting next to you. Think of the worst person you could think of in history. Those people are made in the image of God. Now, in just a moment, we're going to talk about the effects of sin. And the effects of sin are real. One pastor that I was listening to years ago, he would give the illustration, you know, I have a child and I have a a dog. And if push comes to shove and I've got to kill one of them, the dog is toast. Because the dog is not made in the image of God. Never was, never will be. Three quick theories about the nature of man. Monism, which happens to be the accepted theory in this anthropology textbook, in your biology textbook, in any other textbook, says you're made up of one kind of stuff. You are matter, you are energy, and you are a biological, you are a meat machine. That's all you are. If I can study you long enough, I can figure out why you're going to make every decision based on the the electrons in your head moving around, causing things to happen. It's fascinating to me. In a moment, you might think we're going to talk about predestination, but we're not. But we are going to talk about free will for just one second. I remember when you get into a discussion of free will and it was a religious discussion, a philosophical discussion. You know, how can you believe the Bible and believe in free will? That isn't the discussion anymore. The discussion is whether science allows the existence of free will. If all you are are the synapses in your brain doing things, and if I'm smart enough to understand all those synapses, you are programmed 
to respond. You have no more free will than a billiard ball being hit by a billiard ball being hit by a billiard ball that obeys the laws of physics, and that is monism. There's two more after that. One of them breaks us up into two parts, and one of them breaks us up into three parts by dividing the idea of the soul and spirit into two different pieces. Um, I have heard preachers, I have read theologians who believe each of these two positions, okay? And I'm not really going to get into a big debate. Why? Because the debate today is not whether you are broken up into two or three pieces. The debate today is, is there such a thing as a soul? Is there an immaterial part of you as a human being? And the Bible clearly says that there is. Those who believe that there are three parts distinguished between soul and spirit, and if I get this right, you are a spiritual being, you're a physical being, and the soul is kind of the interface between these two. But once again, the debate today, you go read a psychology textbook. Do you know what psychology means? The study of the soul. And there will not be a mention of soul in that textbook. There won't be. I've picked up stacks of them, you know, Go to the index, soul. Not, it's not there. Like I went to the anthropology one and looked up God, and he wasn't there. Religion was there, but not God. Why is this important? Once again, if you're an evolved creature, you're going to be born, you're going to die, and you're going to be food for worms, and that's the end of the story. You are not made in the image of God. You are just another, probably more intelligent creature than your dog. And some of you, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> we just respond to stimuli, and that's all that happens. But if we have an eternal soul, just think of the significance of that. You are standing in line at the grocery store, not the self-checkout, but you're actually going to interface with a live human being. That live human being is made in the image of God and is going to exist forever because they have a soul. Okay, but then we get to the bad part. And that he, man, fell through sin, and as a consequence of his sin, lost his spiritual life, becoming dead in trespasses and sin, and that he became subject to the power of the devil. Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. 
Guess what? We sin. God says do this, and we do that. We are by nature's objects of God's wrath, the scripture tells us. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries um, does a study. Actually, they hire a company to do a survey, and it's called the State of Theology. This is what Americans believe about theological issues. And the new one came out this week. 73% of Americans, this is all Americans, 73% of Americans believe everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Okay? 65% of evangelicals believe this. We're going to talk about this in just a moment. And I might add, 53% of Americans believe that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. We do not like the idea that there is such a thing as sin. But you do know that this explains the universe. How is it that God created the world and said, this is good. And he created man and he said, this is all very good. And we look around us today and there's a lot that's not very good. What happened? Sin. We fell. We lost our spiritual life. We became dead. Now, I think if I went to the doctor right now, the doctor would say that I'm not dead. Okay? I'm still walking around, still probably have a pulse, I think. Adam and Eve committed their rebellion against God. And guess what? They didn't drop dead. But the scripture is very clear. Spiritually, they died. We are a spiritual being. We are a physical being. Physical death came. Once again, I am convinced that if they hadn't eaten the wrong fruit, they would have lived forever. And their children, and their children, and their children, and they would have tended the garden, and it would have been really cool. Physical death entered the world, but spiritual death happened immediately. Let's keep going. Back to Genesis. But you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Once again, physically, they didn't die. Spiritually, they did. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were evil all the time. Don't you just hate sentences like that? Every inclination, all the time. It gets worse than that. We also believe, this is the last part of the doctoral statement on this, we also believe that this spiritual death or total depravity of human nature has been transmitted to the entire human race of man 
the man Christ Jesus alone being accepted, and hence that every child of Adam is born into the world with a nature which not only possesses no spark of divine life, but is essentially and unchangeably bad apart from divine grace. Wait, didn't we just read that 73% of Americans think we're all born good? And here we go with this stuff. We are born sinners. That doesn't sound very fair. That doesn't sound right. What's wrong? This is what is known as the doctrine of original sin. Adam sinned by eating the fruit that God had commanded him not to eat Adam sinned. And the scripture tells us that when Adam sinned, we were in Adam. And when Adam sinned, as the representative of all humanity, we were born in sin because of the result of his sin. But that seems to be blaming the great, great, great-grandchildren for the sins of the father. Well, we were in Adam. Well, that's not my fault. Well, it is, actually. I always like G.K. Chesterton's comment about the doctrine of the original sin. He said, I don't know why people have trouble with the doctrine of original sin, because it's the only Christian doctrine that can be proven with empirical evidence. The doctrine of original sin explains why we sin. Now, given your birth and give it a few minutes, you sin. And, you know, we have this chicken-egg debate. Am I a sinner because I sin, or do I sin because I'm a sinner? And the answer is yes. Okay, just in case there was any concern of anybody in this room, you've sinned. If you don't think you've sinned, John tells us you're lying, which is a sin. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because we were in Adam. Now, it's interesting. We don't like the idea of us being in Adam, but Paul in the book of Romans is going to use this to teach us that we are in Adam, we sin, but we can be in Christ and receive his righteousness. And guess what? If you're not in Adam, you're not in, you get the picture, right? There's one exception to this, and that is Jesus Christ, who was human, but guess what? He did not have a biological father. The taint of original sin was not transmitted to Jesus. He was, in fact, born without sin. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. 
The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They, the fool, are corrupt. Their deeds are vile, and there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not one. And in case you don't believe, let's see. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And just in case, there's good old-fashioned Romans chapter 3. That quotes, by the way, what we just read. I'm going to read it. Look at the alls and the everyones. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Who is Romans chapter 3 talking about? Everybody. No, no, no. It's talking about Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Pol Pot and those other really, really bad guys. You know, I'm not going to ask you for current examples. You might start listening. No, we're not going to do it. No, it's talking about you and me. Wait a minute. I haven't shed any blood recently, except my own. Yeah, but, you know, Jesus had this strange thing that if you're angry at somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. And I'm not going to have any true confession here, but I will go so far to say I've been angry at some people recently, sometime. We are... Sinners. Not just, yeah, we make a mistake every once in a while. We look at the will of God and we go this way. Why am I making such a big deal about this? Because in two weeks we're going to start talking about the gospel. And guess what? If you're not a sinner, you don't need the gospel. But if you think you're not a sinner, you're a sinner and you really need the gospel. We think we can convince people of their need for Jesus by telling them they're great people. We're lying to them. We are sinners. None of us left to our own devices are seeking God. Now, I know there's this idea of seeker-friendly churches, and I, don't, I don't really don't blame them for using that title. But what people are really seeking are the things of God. 
They don't want God, but they do want love. They do want joy. They do want peace, patience. They want these things, but they don't want the God that gives them those things. We do seek the things of God. We just don't want God. Yes, sir. The question was, what does this mean for babies? Um, we believe, I believe, that God has provision for infants who die without the usual phrase is the point of accountability. At some point, you don't know. And I might use the same category for people with severe mental illness or whatever, okay? Um, if you believe, say, what the Catholic Church does, they die. They go to limbo. Um, that's why they and other groups uh, practice infant baptism. Because the, what, bab, what baptism does in the Catholic Church is it removes the taint of original sin. You are now in a state of grace. That's why they really want the babies you know, baptized early. Um, we're going to talk about the sacraments later, but suffice it to say, we fall back on the grace of God who says, don't, let, you know, don't forbid the, babies to, the children to come to me, and we allow that God takes care of those. You know, when David had his fling with Bathsheba, and they had a baby, and the baby died, he says, he's not coming to me, I'm going to go to him. The implication being... We'll see each other at another time. So we trust the grace of God. Okay? It's a great question, though, because, yeah. Um, another chapter. What does total depravity mean, and what does it not mean? Okay? It does not mean that you're as bad as you could be. Theologians use the phrase absolute depravity to talk about that. I forgot my glass cup, or I would have used my illustration. You know, I have a cup up here of water. And I put uh, just one little spoonful of dirt in it. And I stir it all up. Now, none of you are going to find that very appealing to drink. And it's not that it's got all the dirt in it that it could have in it. But the dirt that is in it permeates through every part of it. The discussion that was had during the period of the Reformation with regard to total depravity is the fact that some believed that there's a part of you that's not affected by sin. Say, your will. You can still choose rightfully. Or your mind is still working. Your reason is still right. It's not corrupted by sin. And what... The phrase total depravity means is not that you're as bad as you could be. It just permeates through everything. Your reasoning is affected by sin. Your emotions are affected by sin. Every part of you is affected. Now, you could be worse. Well, why aren't you worse? Well, that is what we refer to as God's common grace. It says that God puts restraints on society. Over there where, you know, the king holds the sword for a reason, 
The reason is you're a bunch of sinners. But by keeping the sword, it restrains. And you know what? That's a good thing. We don't want people to be as bad as they could be. It doesn't mean that we can't do things that look good in the eyes of other people. Remember, I just said this. We're all made in the image of God, even if we don't know it, even if we deny it. That doesn't change the reality that we are. It does mean that we cannot do anything in ourselves to please God. Is God just being too picky? Why doesn't God get a good bell curve out, curve the human race on this standard deviation, and half of us come out on the good side of this, just naturally? Because God is holy. That's why there's no plan B for salvation. There's plan A, which is Jesus Christ, because he was perfect. Actually, there is a plan B. All you have to do is from the day you're born to the day you die, not sin. Do we have any candidates? And if you ever do sin, there's no way of going back apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ. The question is not what makes us feel better. It makes me feel better to think everybody's good. The question is what is true? We, as Americans, want to believe everybody is good. We do. You know, I meet somebody at the grocery store, I'm going to assume the best of them as long as I can. It is interesting how this permeates our society. There are those who honestly believe the founding fathers of our country wanted to have Everybody get the vote because everybody was good and they trusted the people to make the right decision. The founding fathers didn't trust you as far as they could throw you. They gave everybody the vote because collectively, maybe we can keep you from running berserk. They believed this. As I said, up to 100 years ago, this would have just been accepted even by the unbelievers of our country. We still want to believe that we are basically good. We are running out of time, because I have no, no. But what about free will? Whenever anyone asks you about free will, first ask them, what do they mean by the phrase free will? Okay, well, we make choices. Okay, then you have free will, because we do make choices. Does it mean that I'm free to do anything I want? Obviously, no. Am I free to choose to fly without external help? I'm going to go up on top of this building, and I'm going to fly around the neighborhood. Why? I can't do that because it's not in my nature. I'm not a bird. Am I free to be in the NFL? No. I wasn't even free to be in the NFL when I was of the right age to be in the NFL. Why? I'm tiny, I'm small, and I'm weak. That's my nature. Or does it mean that I am free to choose that which is in my nature to choose? 
Go back to Romans chapter 3. There is no one who seeks after God. There is no one who does good. There is no one, there is no one, there is no one. And give that person free will. What are they going to choose? To sin. They choose it freely. What is fallen man's nature to choose? And I put on here, remember the whole. That's just my illustration that I use. Let's say I hire you to mow my yard. There's a lawnmower, but I tell you, watch out over there, there's a hole in the ground. If you fall in the hole, you will not be able to get out and you will not be able to mow the yard. And you, out of curiosity, you run over the hole and you jump in the hole. You just jump into it. And I come back two hours later, the yard isn't mowed. And I come over to you and I look and you're in the hole. And I say, why didn't you mow the yard? How could I mow the yard? I was in the hole. But I told you not to go in the hole. Do you see? You choose and then you don't like the fact that that choice has consequences. So I do believe in free will. I believe you choose. You're just going to choose bad stuff. All Orthodox Christians are in agreement that man, male and female, are made in the image of God. Many groups question whether or how we inherit Adam's sin. In our modern day and age, that just isn't fair. Yeah, I'll admit I should be held accountable for my sin, but don't blame it. Well, it's a moot point because I've sinned enough. Many groups question whether or not we are totally depraved. Yeah, I make some mistakes every once in a while. Conclusion, we are created in the image of God. In the sin of Adam and Eve, we all sin. We are born with a sin nature. And I don't care whether you like that or not. You just read the book of Romans and it sits there and stares you in the face. We sin because we are sinners. There is nothing that we as sinners can do to merit salvation, even if we wanted to. And the debate from Romans 3 is whether you would want to. You think this is all really bad stuff. And you're right, it's really bad stuff. But until you understand the bad stuff, you're not going to appreciate the gospel. You're going to think God and I are just buddies and he was happy to have me on his team. We live in a world today where we all want to think we're just pretty good guys. And you know what? We are pretty good guys. We dress well. We're here. We're polite to each other. But in the eyes of God, we have rejected God. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. But, remember the first part of Ephesians? We are dead in our sins. Chapter 2, we are dead in our sins. Dead in our sins. I told you I wasn't going to talk about predestination. I'm not going to. Just sort of. I am not 
a rabid believer in predestination, okay? But I do believe with regard to salvation, God moves first. And you know what convinced me of that one time? I was listening to a pastor, good preacher, good preacher, talking about being dead in our sin from Ephesians chapter 2. I mean, he went to great lengths to talk about the fact we're dead spiritually. And it was really good. And then he goes, and you know what we need to do? We need to choose to accept Christ. And I'm going, you just said we were dead. Dead men don't choose. They don't. God has to move first. Now, in two weeks, we'll start talking about salvation. Today's lesson. You, every human being on this planet, the richest guy on the planet, the poorest person on the planet, is made in the image of God. The smartest person on the planet, the person with some severe mental issues, physical issues, etc., etc., are made in the image of God and are more valuable than any, anything else. But we, of our own free will, chose to rebel against God. And the only solution to that is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I pray, Lord, that we would look totally to you for our salvation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.